Well, creating something is a very powerful experience. And, you know, the word magic, I mean, who, who knows? It's it's an interesting word. It's a, it's a wonderful word in the English language because it connotes something bigger than we are, something exciting that's out there that we can't quite grasp, but that we hope sort of smiles on us. But there is real power in creating. So I think for me, the magic is you produce this story and it takes on a life of its own. It's like, wow, this, these characters didn't exist before I put them together. This story didn't exist. Even if it's not a blockbuster, even if it's not a bestseller, I created something from my mind that I put out on paper and organized well enough to where it's coherent. And it not only tells a story, but it also provides a conduit to the truth, if that's the right way to put it. It unearths truth. And I think as artists, that's what every one of us are trying to do. I would assume, again, I could wax philosophical about art, but as I like far it. as uh, I, well, as far as I have always heard and I've always believed, that's what art is. Right. If art lies, it's worthless. If art isn't telling the truth, it's worthless. Right. So all art seeks to make truthful statements, and that's what literature is for me. And that to me is magical because I've gone beyond the mundane. And there's nothing wrong with the mundane. There's honor in just surviving and living life, paying taxes, paying your bills, and taking care of the people that you love. That's not mundane. It just is. But when you are, when you can rise even above that and create something that you're really, really proud of, whether it's a piece of music or a drawing or whatever, but in my case, prose, it just, it makes everything just so much richer. And it just makes me feel like I've done my part. I think that was a magical answer. What do you think? I, I liked it. <laughs> I do. do you think it's been sort of cathartic in a way for you? Absolutely. Welcome to the Lifelines Podcast, brought to you by the Brooklyn Writers Project. I'm Marina Aris. And I'm Diane Fenner. And we're your hosts. This is the podcast for book creators, book lovers, and literary ambassadors. Join us each week as we explore the writing life, the art, and the business of creating great books. Joining us today is Roger Caniff. He is the author of Copperhead Road and Among the Dead. He is a survivor of sexual abuse who became a special victims prosecutor in the 1990s and worked with hundreds of victims, mostly children. He has created fiction as a way to better access the truth and believes that truth-telling is power and that there is magic in the ability to tell a tale. Roger, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Hey, Roger. Good to see you. Here we go. <laughs> Using, I, I love that. Why don't we start actually with one of your favorite quotes by Stephen King? Because I think that is a good one, and many people may or may not have heard it, but I think that's a really great place to start when we're talking about your work, which is fiction is the truth inside the lie. Tell us why this resonates with you and how it ties into your own work. Well, it's interesting because that quote was one that King wrote. He dedicated one of his books. It was in the 80s. It might have been It. It was one of the sort of later super bestsellers, but I think it was the mid to late 80s. I was a teenager, but it was to his kids. It was a dedication to his children. And this is long before I had a sense of what I wanted to do professionally. It was long before I had resolved what I had sort of gone through personally, good and bad. So I was still really, I was a child myself and I was still just in kind of a fog. And yet there was something about that line I can picture it as if it were yesterday. It was in italics, typical, very beginning of a book. And it basically said, to my children, I think it's Owen and Naomi Phillip, I think might be the names of his kids. But in any event, he says, to my children, kids, comma, fiction is the truth inside the lie. And he goes on and says a couple of other beautiful things. But I, I that first line just struck me. And that's when I started to write. I was probably 16. And something inside me said, that's it. That's the thing that you need to do. Whatever else you do, personally or professionally, you're going to write because it's important. I can't say that I fully articulated, I'm going to find the truth inside the lie, but that struck me and that really set everything in motion. Yeah, I mean, it does, it strikes me as well, but it's not, I don't think it's so easy to grasp exactly, right? For when you first hear it, the way it sounds, it feels like, Okay, he's definitely just said something really deep and meaningful, but when you want to un unpack it, unpack it, thank you. Well, you know, it's Roger and I were talking about this business of truth telling and the importance of it in sexual abuse cases, 
because of course Roger is prosecuting them and he's preparing witnesses. And I don't know if you want to not anymore, that. right? No, that's mm-hmm. correct. Correct. Not, not now anymore. I, I now do training counseling. and consulting, but I'm no longer no longer on the ground, unfortunately. Sometimes. Okay. Sorry, just wanted but, to clarify that. You know, the idea that truth would be the difference between having the case come out well or having the case not be believed was what struck me because, you know, as writers, we're always talking about truth, but that's another occasion when the power of the truth moves the universe and makes something happen that wouldn't otherwise have happened if it wasn't brought out and communicated. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's very true. Prosecuting child sex abuse cases and sexual abuse cases in general is something that I was drawn to do very early in thinking about my professional career. Basically, by the time I was an undergrad and I was planning to go to law school, I knew that that's what I wanted to do. The interesting thing is the fact that I am a survivor of child sexual abuse, honestly, I don't think it has anything to do with it. Now, there may be an army of psychologists that would disagree with me, (laughs) but I really don't. I processed that experience uh, with some great friends uh, in therapy. I Obviously, it affected me. Obviously, it drove me. It has shaped me. But my desire to prosecute special victims cases was just almost innate. It was just something I felt that I would be good at. I have a very strong amina. I I joke around a little bit of strong feminine side, and I do. And I knew that I would be good with high-level emotional cases. I knew that I would be good at making a connection with women, children, and men as well who had been hurt in this particular way. And I had a feeling that I could unlock what it was that they needed to tell not only me, but a a fact finder, a judge, or a jury. And I was right. I was very good at those cases. And, And I'm proud to say that. And believe me, that's only the product of lots of mistakes and years and years and years of practice. So I don't want it to seem as if I was some superstar talent. I worked very hard. But yeah, at the end of the day, in order to prove those cases, you must be very good at unlocking the truth from individuals who have been harmed, not just victims, sometimes witnesses, what we used to call or what we call non-offending caregivers, parents who may have to grieve themselves when they discover what happened to their child or sibling. So everybody involved needs to be prepared to tell the truth. Everybody involved needs to be prepared to recite The victim, of course, in particular, needs to be able to tell a judge or a jury about specific physical acts and sensations and contact and things that are very, very intimate and terrifying and culturally just taboo. So that's another level of challenge. But for everybody involved, truth is truth is the power. Truth is what proves the case. And our culture, pop culture, we we see Law and Order SVU or we see uh, we read CSI books, we see those kinds of things, and not all of us, but there are certainly many people who assume that, particularly with modern science, most abuse cases can be proved with technology. Oh, well, there has to be a swab, or there must have been a stain left behind, or DNA. That's almost never the case. The vast majority of cases of sex abuse, adult or child, are proven by testimony, and that testimony has to be compelling. And and tell us then how this type of work has tied into your writing and how you sort of, what made you want to use fiction as a way to explore these concepts, the the truth, the way it lives inside of these abuse cases and what people go through? What was the the match that that struck this for you? What what got going? Well, I was already writing by the time I got into prosecution. So I, I, my writing was simply informed by the job. It was informed by police procedure. It was informed by real life interaction with wounded people, with marvelous people, with courageous people. So it was just informed by experience. And I think I use writing typically to clarify a truth or a group of them that I see in my work. So I, I see trends within, I don't know if trends is the right word, but I, I see certain sort of universal like patterns? Truths. Or? Yeah. Uh-huh. There are patterns in, in terms of how human beings react. And some of this is cultural. I mean, I'm, I am here in the United States. And this is, I've prosecuted in two jurisdictions, but generally I've been in one place. But yes, I, I believe there are patterns. I believe there are ways of reacting. I believe there are, there are aspects of the human spirit. All of these things I have seen play out in real time. And fiction gives me the ability to pull those things together, pull those patterns, pull those different truths 
pull those experiences and then weave them into a story that I hope explains those things in kind of a whole. Does that make sense? And by the way, I would never, I would never assert that I can tell the whole truth in a story or that I can reflect any, everybody's experiences, let alone a single person. All I'm doing is, is producing a story based on what I'm informed by. But I like to believe that those universal things bubble up through my story and they give the average reader a better picture of how the world works, particularly this world, the world that I chose to immerse myself in. And when people hear it and recognize it as truth, it's because it's connected to something in them that they've experienced or they recognize. Absolutely. Even if they have no experience with sexual abuse, and I certainly hope that they would not, but even if they have no experience with these types of matters, exactly. I think the best stories connect universally because there are, there are aspects of us that are very, very connected. So thank you for suggesting that. But yes, I believe that's true. I, I don't think that a reader needs to have personal experience in any way with these types of cases or this type of work to appreciate what it is I hope to bring out. Which is, I guess, gets us back to where we started about fiction being the truth inside the lie. And who, who do you think you, you, you wrote this book for? Because we're seeing more and more in the, in the industry when you plan a book, when you write a book, who did you think was your target audience? I mean, Among the Dead, the book that's coming out in September. Okay. That book was based on my experiences in the Bronx, which was, you know, the Bronx is, is a, just an amazing place. It's a borough of contradictions. It's, it's got choked urban density and yet marvelous green space. It's extremely poor and yet super brilliant. It's just a very interesting place and it's an interesting experience being a prosecutor there. It can be a very brutal community, but it can be a very beautiful and very welcoming community. That book was really written for those folks, I think. It was written for the, the men and women that I worked beside in law enforcement, and it, it is also written for the people of the Bronx that I was just privileged to know and work with. That's really what that book is about, I think. It's also a book that was more natural for me after 20 years, in, almost 20 years in the business, because now I can comfortably say, yeah, I can, I can write crime thrillers because this is what I know. You, you sure. should write what you know, ideally. Right. What about Copperhead Road? Copperhead Road is a coming-of-age story. Copperhead Road I wrote for my friends. I wrote for the, the young men who are still my friends. I'm very lucky, the guys I grew up with. They were the first people that I disclosed to. They reacted so graciously and with such beauty and dignity that I, I'll never forget that. And they had no training. They had no... They had no special insight. Nobody talked about male child sexual abuse in, in 1987 when I was revealing it to these guys. So the book is dedicated to them. I used to call them the Boys of Summer. This is, you know, Boys of Summer 1985, which was a little bit before I began to disclose, but it was around the time that they began to understand me. And it's also written for survivors. It's written for survivors of, of child abuse. And in some way, I think I wrote it in particular for those of us who came up during the time when it just wasn't talked about. Because well, yeah. those kids are, I mean, it's still, frankly, it's not, most kids still don't disclose, but the world is changing and it's changing faster than even I imagined it would. And I'm glad for that. And it's interesting you say that, right? Because I, as it turns out, I'm also a survivor of sexual abuse, but I'm afraid to read your book. What would you say to people like me that are afraid to read your book because we are survivors ourselves? I would say take care of yourself and don't worry about that at all. I would say that I completely understand right. and that I would never in a billion years encourage you to do something that you thought would give you self-harm. I am proud of that book. I think it is a, a very good story. But I understand that the subject matter is difficult, and I absolutely get. And in fact, trigger warnings are appropriate wherever that book goes, and I generally do that because I think it's fair and I think it's important. That's great. Diane, anything from... Do you find that there is something, or maybe a couple of different things, that are required as preconditions to disclosure? In other words, does a person go automatically with the need to keep their brutal experiences private and then something, some condition must occur for them to feel comfortable in disclosing it. Is it something that we can help people with to make them feel comfortable enough or is it just different for different people? 
it's probably different for different people. I mean, obviously, we're on the time we could talk all day about about the process of disclosure. But I, I would say, in general, the world is becoming a safer, better place for people to disclose, which is going to raise the the amount of disclosures. Without a doubt, every single person is different, and there is certainly no standard way or standard way in which to encourage people to come forward. But the best thing that we can do just sort of societally is is reduce the stigma against victimization, underscore to everybody that if they are a victim, it's not their fault and it's not something you need to be ashamed of. And as that slowly permeates our society, which it honestly is doing more and more and more so, as it slowly begins to settle down, society changes and people are more encouraged to come forward. And I think what you just said there is really critical because what we've tried to do on the show is is take a look at how literature can be a vehicle for change, for education, for motivating people, inspiring people, and in this case, for dealing with the truth, it sounds like. You see, because even though I'm afraid to read your book, maybe I should read your book. Right. I don't I don't know if if I'm doing myself a disservice. Maybe what we need is more more literature like yours that helps people feel like, hey, this happens. This is part of humanity. And this is kind of how you deal with it. And this is how you come out on the other side. So I like what you just said. And I just because I think that that's the other thing that comes from this process of writing. It's not just, you know, bringing it out, but also hopefully bringing out some change that we need or acceptance. I would guess, and I'm just going to ask you if you have any hypothesis, that there's been quite a lot over the history of civilization, not just ours, quite a lot of this sort of hidden sexual abuse, and that we would all be surprised because the uh, trend now to be more open about it is just kind of the tip of the iceberg. Oh, absolutely. I'm a little, I worry a little when I say this because as a survivor, and by the way, I didn't disclose publicly. I never said anything publicly when I was a prosecutor because I frankly thought that people would look at that and say, well, he can't prosecute these cases. He's too close to it emotionally. And they would have been wrong. But I believe, unfortunately, that many people would have thought that. And I was like, I'm not taking that chance. So now that I have become public about it, because it's a part of my life, I hesitate sometimes to say it is absolutely a part of the human condition, but it is. It is absolutely. (laughs) I mean, the conservative figures that we're getting now that have been replicated again and again from the Centers for Disease Control, ACE studies, you can safely, safely say about one in three girls, about one in six boys, safely. And I have a feeling the boy number is probably not exactly accurate. But without a doubt, cross-culturally, every single part of humanity, it is just something that occurs. We don't know what drives it, but it is always present. So, yeah, it it is. It's a a universal experience, and it is shared by so many millions of people. I absolutely, I think, we're better off confronting it, and I think we're doing that. I really do. I mean, as pessimistic and cynical as I can be, I am really, really happy that I live in a world that is moving forward so fast in this regard. I find it interesting that you say that we don't know what drives it, because I thought about this for a long time, probably because I was a survivor. And I mean, I feel like the answer is opportunity. (laughs) I think that opportunity is the answer, not just for why people abuse kids, but why people do anything that they shouldn't be doing. In a sense. I mean, there's a pathology, though. I mean, and that's one thing. That's one thing. Sure, sure. I mean, look. Again, we, we don't know. that there There is a pathology that seems to exist within certain people, it appears. Mm-hmm. The, we used to believe, we used to believe until very recently that most people who abuse kids or abuse anybody sexually, well, that's because it was done to them. And that really isn't true. That's a, that logic is... It's a terrible... Well, it's a, one side of it is probably just wrong, meaning, okay, if a person does this, it was probably done to them. That is actually... A, that's a very intuitive response it goes along with a just world theory. It goes along with Judeo-Christian notions of right and wrong, and it helps us sort of with an ordered universe. So many people are tempted by it. There's a darker side, though, to that same theory, which says, well, if you were sexually abused yourself, you're going to turn around and do it to others. And that's nonsense. The vast majority of victims do not themselves turn around and abuse. In fact, they often become very vigilant parents. They often become much more protective. They're more aware. Now, they do punish themselves, though. 
survivors of sexual abuse, particularly when they don't get the right response, which almost none of us did prior to now, <laughs> uh, yeah, they self-medicate, they, they drift to a reckless lifestyle, so they can do damage to themselves. But very few people who are abused turn around and do that to others. And again, as far as we can tell, you know, there, there are, I'm, I'm a trial lawyer, not a psychologist, and, and I talk to the best psychologists, forensic and anti-violence experts in the world. And there is a difference of opinion, but I think most people would still say at this point, we don't know. We're not sure where the pathology is. Not sure. I find that really interesting. So in your work as a trial lawyer, did you find that there were obstacles or that there were reasons when you couldn't succeed, you couldn't win a trial? I'm looking for problems that have yet to be solved. Oh, yeah. Uh, my own inexperience, my own inability to try the case well, to read the signs, to, you know, of course, my, my own novice played into it, just making the mistakes that we all make. Some cases are just not easy to prove. The, the dynamics are such that a fact finder, a judge or a jury is going to say, I, I just, I, I think he did it. Uh, he probably did it. But this judge is telling me it's beyond a reasonable doubt. And you know, here's a guy who looks normal to me. He doesn't look like a pedophile. He doesn't look like a creeper. And I'm supposed to pull the trigger and send him to prison based on just what this child is saying. So there are tremendous, tremendous obstacles, and there should be. I mean, it should not be easy to convict a person of a crime. That's why we have those tough standards, and, and I respected them, and I'm happy for them. It's just, it is difficult. It really, really is. Real quick thing that I'll say about this to just sort of wrap up this thought is this. When I was working with a survivor, which of course I did a ton of times, when I was working with a kid or an adult, I would always say, listen, the process is your victory. Your disclosure, and I, of course, I would tell her this based on their age of development. And stuff, but I would say the process and the disclosure, the courage that you showed to come forward, that's your victory. Don't hang your hopes or your or your sense of self on a jury verdict or on what a judge will say. That's fantastic. Yeah, yeah. because the system is so imperfect. Right, you know, right. And, and it's just, look, you being here is a victory. You coming forward, all of us around you, these detectives, this victim witness person, this therapist, myself, all of us around you, your mom, you know, hopefully, or other people in your life, we believe you, and that's the victory. Let's talk about characters, because I, I want to understand how you draw from this real-life pool of high drama, I think, right? Extreme drama in some cases, and how do you then create your characters to tell your stories? I think that would be interesting. Characters almost always come from people that I have actually interacted with just because it's so much easier to bring them to life. So what I will almost always do when I'm looking for a character, good or bad, is I will search through my own life and say, what individual do I know that I can build this around? For some characters, of course, that's more of a challenge than others, but that's almost always where it comes from. And then you add layers to them based on, I think, what feels right at the time, what's going to be interesting to the reader. And sometimes the smallest details are the best. You know, just maybe is, is do you have a character who tries to cut his hair in a certain way, but it tends to flop over and create kind of a half moon shape over his forehead? I think people are going to care more about that than he was smart or he was right. deep or he was intense. So sometimes the, the smallest things uh, make the biggest difference. Well, I think what's going to be hard, and correct me if I'm wrong, is giving dimension to the perpetrator because you, you want to blame someone, you want to have a villain, and yet you also want that villain not to be one-dimensional. And I would imagine that you do also have to give the perpetrator something of a sympathetic situation about them. I'm just guessing here, but is, is that kind of what you found in your experience? It's often true. I'll tell you when it just it really just depends on what you're writing. If you're writing mainstream crime fiction, you can absolutely, I think you you can absolutely. I don't want to say get away with, but you can sort of be satisfied by creating a villain that is a little less complex than than perhaps they would be in real life. And I'll be brutally honest: the the characters that I have created, at least so far, the villains I've created are psychopaths. Psychopathy, yeah, oh, absolutely. Psychopathy is, it's not in the DSM-5. It's not yet a recognized, diagnosable condition. As you probably know, it was it was created 
the idea of psychopathy really came to fruition. It was a guy named Dr. Robert Hare, a PhD, who's sort of considered the father of modern psychopathy. There's quite a bit of literature on it now. There's quite a bit of research that underpins its existence. And in fact, some people believe it's an organic condition. You can actually see it on a PET scan. It's very, very scary. And again, I could go on and on about what it is. That's means. fantastic, though. I find yeah. interesting. Well, but, but, it's, but it, is, it is what it is. It, a, a psychopath makes for a great villain. And, and I am not at all exaggerating when I say that there are individuals, there are human beings, quite a few of them actually walking around who have that condition. Not all of them are violent. Not all of them are even criminal. You, psychopaths in, in corporate America, you have psychopaths everywhere. But wait, how is that? Because that makes me think about there was a book called The Sociopath Next Door. Yeah, so now you've got exactly. sociopath and psychopath. Are they one in the same team? Yes. They're, they're, they're one in the same team? Well, yeah. they're, you know, again, there are yeah. differences in the psychological community. But uh-huh. at, at the end of the day, most people in general use it. Sociopathy and psychopathy are interchangeable. And in fact, Sociopathy is really going out of favor. A a sociopath, that's an older term, and a sociopath just kind of described a rule breaker. I I think the the modern description of that from the DSM would be like antisocial personality disorder or something, Mm -hmm. which antisocial is one of the feeders to psychopathy. It's usually antisocial and narcissism. And the two ratchet up, and, and when those personality disorders manifest themselves thoroughly enough in a person, that person can be can test as, you know, according to the hair scale and some other things, as a psychopath. So my villain characters have been psychopaths so far. I absolutely would like to create a villain who isn't because I think there is a tremendous amount of opportunity for that. And I, I, without a doubt, I mean, the, the vast majority of the mostly men, some women, but the mostly men that I prosecuted were not psychopaths. There were a few that were, I think, uh, certainly diagnosable, but for the most part, they weren't. They were highly flawed pathologically driven people. And I absolutely think there's a marvelous character in there that I would like to create. It's just that, you know, the, the, the first book, Copperhead Road's a coming of age story, that villain, which I believe is, I believe he's very realistic and very present in a lot of kids' lives, but I didn't go too much into, into his, into his background. And then the second book, same thing. The second book is more of, it's a page turner. It's a thriller. It's fun. I like it. I think it's quality, but I haven't yet delved into that let's get into the mind of this person and talk about what it is they're struggling with. And I'll be honest, part of the reason I don't do that is because there are a lot of people in that world who, who are diagnosably psychopaths that tend to lean on all sorts of psychological excuses and create things. That's the other thing. The con never ends. So when That's I'm, interesting. Oh, I'm the con serious. never ends. I like that. I know. I, I I know, uh, I mean, I, I have a great friend who's a forensic psychologist who works with, she actually treats psychopaths, and she has to do it very carefully. There's a whole, there's a whole regimen around yeah. treating psychopaths. You have to constantly interface with the other treaters. You have to constantly check yourself against the other psychologists. Everybody has to, it's very strange. You're almost never supposed to treat them one-on-one because they can be masterful at just getting in your head. I know it sounds cliche, it sounds silence of the lamps, but it is absolutely true. And it's a real, they are very dangerous people. They are truly, truly dangerous people, which isn't to say they're not human. Of course they are, but they're dangerous people. So it can be difficult, sometimes impossible to say, well, how can I humanize this person? They are absolutely human. I would never want to take their humanity away or to suggest that they're not. But their expression of humanity is just tragic and very, very dangerous. And we're still grappling with it. It's changing the course of criminal justice in some ways. Do you have any theories about the best way to deal with it? After the trial, you're the judge. What's your recommendation? All you can do really is control the behavior. All you can do with it. If, again, psychopathy, like a lot of things, falls in a scale, you know, some people, high-scoring psychopaths, there's not much you're going to do. Really, all you can do is put them in an environment and monitor them very closely and provide them with strategies in order to control their behavior so that they will not harm others. But I don't know of any psychological treatment, and I used to be very, very up on this, not as an author, actually, but as a, when I worked for the Attorney General's office, I was in the Sex Offender Management Unit, and we worked with these exact issues. Uh, but no, there's, I, I am not aware of any real treatment for psychopathy. And again, the, the, the latest research is suggesting that it is organic, that it is a brain condition as real as schizophrenia, and that if it's there, just keep them away from everybody. Yeah. If they haven't done anything, obviously, you know, I yeah, mean, right. yeah you, but, but yeah, they, there's a legally yeah. appropriate way, you know, once they've committed a crime and 
So, yeah. but in your book now, in your books, when you're dealing, you said you've written psychopaths. So that means that you've had to draw an arc for them, right? The, the doing the deed, whatever it is mm -hmm. to potentially being prosecuted and, or going through to the final end, whatever that end is. Mm -hmm. And so therefore you had to, despite not knowing all the answers, that's a big challenge for you as an author, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and, I mean, in the, in the first book, there isn't a trial. There's another, there's another resolution to the situation in the second there is, but it's, it's hard to explain. It's at the sort but yes, you, you, you absolutely, to the extent that you're going to get in anybody's head, to the extent that you're going to do a POV from a, from a villain or from a character, you, you end up making choices and you end up taking some leaps. Right. Cause that, no doubt. what I'm thinking is how is a reader satisfied with that type of a villain, right? Because what mm -hmm. you're in essence saying is it's a done deal. Either they get prosecuted or they don't, right? Mm -hmm. But those people are just, they're beyond our scope of, of understanding in, a, in essence. But the reader mm -hmm. reading your story has to come away from it with some sort of satisfaction. How do you address hmm. how you end your stories? Because think about it, right? Yeah. I mean, I, if they get prosecuted, there's some semblance of, of justification, mm -hmm. right? In that type of a story in mm -hmm. crime, I'm imagining that readers want the juicy details, what happened, and then the whole incidents, how do you deal with what happened and mm -hmm. how do you get to justice? And then the final act, do you or don't you get justice? And I would assume in your books, I don't know, mm -hmm. Diane, <laughs> there's justice. There's there justice. Is. There, there is a Do they have to have justice? There is. I don't know that they have to. In my stories, at least, I've actually written three. The second one I just kind of put on the shelf, conversation for a different time. But the two that are out for public consumption, there is a denouement. There is a, re a resolution that I think is satisfying to the average reader. I don't think that's necessary, though. I think you can produce beautiful art with an ending that is, like life often is, uncertain or unsatisfying. Like the movie Seven? Correct. Did you see Seven? That Correct. was, oh, to this day, I don't want to see it again. <laughs> but I still remember yeah. the feeling. Right. Did you see it, Diane? No. no. Oh, this movie will just, it just drives you down into this dark hole and it leaves you there. That's it. You're, that's, that's where you stay at the yeah. end of it. It's a, it, but it's marvelous art. I but mean, it's, it's, it is. It's, it's, a, it's a fantastic film. film. Absolutely. The is tension, it? the suspense, mm -hmm. the, I mean, well, it's a film, so the cinematography mm -hmm. and the whole bit. But that's what it makes me think of. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and I think that's important sometimes. I, because, again, that reflects life far more than a neat beginning, middle, end. I just also think, though, that in American literature, particularly the kind of fiction I write, I think... I think resolution is important. In, in a way, I think, you know, life is bad enough. If I want to read a book, sometimes there's a little bit of escapism. I want to tell a truth. I want to write beautifully. I don't want to produce, you know, I don't want to produce pulp. But I don't mind producing stories that have a relatively uh, satisfying ending that, that I think most readers would enjoy. Because I think sometimes that's important. And I, and I think there's a value in that. Well, let me just get this in, in order. The first book, Copperhead Road, which was amazing, was an Amazon breakthrough novel, or you were a quarter finalist. I'm mm -hmm. looking at my yeah, notes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then the sec so that's Copperhead Road. The second book, Among the Dead, has been out. It has not. It's it is being it will be released in September of 2018. I'm publishing it through a, a small publisher, Waldorf Books, and out of Grapevine, Texas, and they are producing the book. They will release it September 15th of this year. And where can people get that? It'll be in Amazon. It'll be Ingram. It'll be all over the place. And we were hoping to get it into into some major bookstores as well. But uh, without a doubt, Amazon Ingram will have it beginning 9, 15, 18. All right. I just wanted to kind of get the background and the context set. Thanks. All right. So we, we I think we really did cover a lot of the truths. Let's talk about the magic, the magic and the ability to tell a tale. Let's talk about what is that for you? Well, creating something is a very powerful experience. And, you know, the word magic, I mean, who, who knows? It's, it's an interesting word. It's a, it's a wonderful word in the English language because it connotes something bigger than we are, something exciting that's out there that we can't quite grasp, but that we hope sort of smiles on us. But there is real power in creating. So I think for me, the magic is you produce this story and it takes on a life of its own. It's like, wow, this, these characters didn't exist before I put them together. This story didn't exist. Even if it's not a blockbuster, even if it's not a bestseller, I created something 
from my mind that I put out on paper and organized well enough to where it's coherent. And it not only tells a story, but it also provides a conduit to the truth, if that's the right way to put it. It unearths truth. And I think as artists, that's what every one of us are trying to do. I would assume, again, I could wax philosophical about art, but as I like far it. as uh, I, well, as far as I have always heard and I've always believed, that's what art is. Right. If art lies, it's worthless. If art isn't telling the truth, it's worthless. Right. So all art seeks to make truthful statements. And that's what literature is for me. And that to me is magical because I've gone beyond the mundane and there's nothing wrong with the mundane. There's honor in just surviving and living life, paying taxes, paying your bills and taking care of the people that you love. That's not mundane. It just is. But when you are, when you can rise even above that and create something that you're really, really proud of, whether it's a piece of music or a drawing or whatever, but in my case, prose, it just, it makes everything just so much richer. And it just makes me feel like I've done my part. I think that was a magical answer. What do you think? I, I liked it. <laughs> I do. do you think it's been sort of cathartic in a way for you? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. You discover a lot of, I think, author discovers a lot about themselves when they write a book. And you go back and read your dialogue, go back and read your descriptions, particularly as you get older and, and more mature and you see the rookie mistakes and you see that, you know, so it's a reflection of how you've grown as a person as well as how your craft has grown. It's very cathartic. What did you do to improve your craft? Well, I think you always have to read well to write well. But but at the end of the day, a good editor is the most valuable thing that you can sure. possibly have. I mean, I mean that. A good editor will just, a really good, not just a story editor, but a good copy editor. Good story editor is important too. What about this? What about that? What if he did this? What if she did that? That's important. But a great copy editor, they'll just clean up so much. That to me is the real key. Find the right man or woman to work with who really, really edits beautifully and your stuff will stand out. And I know some really marvelous, talented writers that have not yet gotten that and Makes, it's just you can tell yeah. them, you can tell that the work can right be because because yeah. there's just there's it, there's there isn't enough of a flow there's distractions there's things that pull you out of the story and all of that stuff can be smoothed over by a good copy editor you have to invest in that so how did you find yours well the I'm not sure if I found a singular one yet I've worked with some very very good ones right now there's a woman out of Chicago I'm working with who I'm really really happy with there are a lot of things that you need you 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 want to find one that is comfortable with your style you want to you also have to be comfortable with their style are they Chicago manual or are they another type there are different obviously there are different ways of expressing numerals and things like that so and you want that to be consistent in a book ideally you probably want it consistent within your Genre. Bank of right, right, right within your genre and within your personal bank of literature. So it's it's a it's kind of a long process. And I've worked with some that were wonderful people, but just not all that great. And it's you know you can really really tell the difference when you find the right one. So the way I find it, I find it through other writers. Uh -huh. I the, you know the, the that's why that's why I, I love this group so much. It's so valuable because the more you interact with other writers, the more that insight bubbles up. Right, the Brooklyn. We didn't mention that you're you're also a member of the Brooklyn mm -hmm. Writers Project now, so that that's true. We're happy to have you, Roger, to be a member of the group. So I want to take this a little bit in another direction for a second. But the Me Too movement is very much in the headlines these days, and I wonder if that's some sort of a natural extension, or if that is sort of a near cousin of the kind of work that you're doing in child abuse. And in particular, I. I read an excerpt at the Brooklyn Writers Project when we were workshopping our work, and I read an excerpt of yours where you had a character named Alex Greco that I just loved. And the reason I loved it is because at one point he's a detective and at one point he's describing a person and he says, well, there's some question, maybe she's a prostitute. And someone in the room corrects him and mm -hmm. says, uh, you mean a woman used in prosecution. And this detective immediately accepts the correction and says, yes, I mean a woman used in prostitution. And then never again refers to her as a prostitute and continues to use the phrase a woman used in prostitution, which I thought showed a tremendous sensitivity and insight in uh, a male detective mm -hmm. and made me like the character and also made me start to think about the bridge or the connection between child abusers and people who are 
abusive of women, adult women. Does that seem to you like it's connected, like it's almost... Oh yeah, it's absolutely connected. Another thing that I think researchers are discovering is that the pathology that underpins interpersonal violence, particularly sexual violence, tends to cut across the board. So a, a person who abuses, you can have a preferential child sex offender who you know, has a preference for a young child or something. But but we often see that a person who abuses children sexually will also opportunistically abuse an adult sexually. So the pathology is often the same. And I definitely think the Me Too movement is the latest manifestation of a tired and often victimized population just saying enough. We, we already have, we've already seen this. The, the, the women's liberation movement of the late 60s, early 70s kind of coincided with the crime victim movement of around the same time when crime was spiking through the 80s. Those two movements sort of coalesced. And when it came to sexual abuse, rape, adult sexual abuse, and child sexual abuse, those movements kind of came together around victims and pushed their way into the system and said, we demand to be treated better. And I'm glad. I mean, thank God for that. And that's where that exchange that you talked about, I, I appreciate you saying that, that exchange comes directly from life. I have been guilty of using the word prostitute, and I have had wonderful, almost almost exclusively women, but wonderful women in the anti-violence movement who have schooled me and shaped me over the years and said, Roger, just mind your terminology. Almost no women enter prostitution without being forced into it. Again, we, I don't want to get into the whole thing of our sex workers allowed to do what they do, and, and do they have autonomy, because many people believe that, and I'm not challenging that. But we do often find, at least in this culture, that the word prostitute is really unfair to assign to a woman or a man or a boy or a girl. You're almost always dealing with somebody who has been forced or led into the profession as being controlled by a pimp or somebody like that. So it's so much better to just use language that's sensitive. And it really does work. You get it into your head and you realize it and you adopt it and then you move forward and the response just gets better. But thank you for bringing that up. All right. So I wanted to, we're almost out of time, but I did like something that I, I found on your bio and I'll read it here. And then I'll ask you how this ties into your work, because I think in some ways it might, it might be the, I think what I read is the result of what you've seen in your line of work and what you've seen through the process of creating books based on your line of work. Mm -hmm. So what you wrote was Lately, my most tempting image of God is one of a frustrated artist and the cosmos a palette. And I could be stretching, okay? Maybe, I mean, that means nothing at all to like what I said it was, but I think you should elaborate on that because I, I think that victims, non-victims, whatever, we all have a belief system and sometimes our beliefs and or our moral compass comes into play. And sometimes we find ourselves living in a world where we all ask the same question is how is it possible that there is a God and these things happen? Mm -hmm. And then you branch off into people who believe like you, that there is a God and people who are not so sure mm -hmm. because of what they've seen. Right. So I don't know if I'm drawing too strong of a connection no. here, but no, no, it's a very fair question. And, I, and the way I put it, you know, I should give attribution to that image because I think it was, it might've been Gore Vidal it might have been Vonnegut, but I, I had heard that, not the exact way that I put it, but I had heard that sort of way of describing God. It, it's a tempting place to go for some people, obviously for a traditional Judeo-Christian believer or any of the Abrahamic religions, Islam, Judaism, Christianity, to be really doctrinal is to believe in an omnipotent, omnipresent God that is all-knowing and all this stuff. So it's really kind of heretical to to imply that God is less than all powerful, but that is what I do. That's one image. The, the other very, very strong tendency I have to view God is as a deist. I, and I have very strong deist tendencies. I believe in a, in a basically benevolent creator. I believe in a, in a force we can't even imagine that created the universe, but I'm very, very tempted to believe that that figure does not interact with us or have an interest in our daily life the way that many religious have taught us, including mine. I grew up Roman Catholic and I continue to practice as a Roman Catholic. And nevertheless, I go back and forth between, I think God is decent and genius, but disinterested in day-to-day -day human affairs. Or I believe that God is himself, herself, itself struggling and, and trying to accomplish something else. 
So that's just kind of where I'm poised. <laughs> I like in, it. In, and I go to mass. So but I, I, I think yeah. your, your work uh, might, might influence that is what I'm thinking. And certainly. Yeah, I hope so. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I, for me as a kid, I thought, you know, God is going to fix this. And then as I got older, I was like, wait, nobody's going to fix this. I've got to yeah. fix this, right? No, I, I, <laughs> it's know? so dangerous. I mean, I, yeah. I just, yeah. it's unfortunate, but I, I just think it's tremendously dangerous to, to suggest that God is going to make it okay. And I, you know, again, we could talk all day. There are different ways to look at it. There are people who will say, well, God doesn't promise, a, a, he doesn't promise a, a smooth journey, just a destination. That's one way to look at it. So I, I guess at the end of the day, everybody has to make these or not, or, or walk away and say, what I am going to deal with is what I see around me. And I'm just not going to deal with it. I find that unsatisfying. I don't, I don't like atheism, not because I don't respect it or people who are atheistic, but to me, it's unsatisfying. So I'm like, okay, I believe there's something out there. How can I make sense of it? And you're right. When, when, in particularly with the, why did, why did bad things happen to good people? That age old question it's it's just an incredibly tough one to wrestle with it, but I continue to. No, I appreciate that. Thank you for sharing that. So the final question that we ask all of our guests is, how would you address a group of first-time crime fiction writers who are about to embark on this journey? What what are some things that are not, not cliche, we always say this, not like write every day, not like don't be afraid to write, but what, what do you think, based on your experience would be something really helpful to get these people on the right track and the right frame of mind to approach the work and to hopefully be successful at it. Well, I'd say go out and live it as much as you can. And by that, I don't mean tempt fate and, and get into a dangerous situation. I don't mean that at all. But to the extent that you can involve yourself in the work, and this too is difficult because getting close to crime is a, is a difficult process emotionally. Not everybody's ready to do it. Not everybody's cut it out for it. But I think ideally, I mean, if I'm just going to be blunt, if you want to write crime, you got to know crime. And if you want to write survivors and victims, you need to you need to have been around them. At least I think in order to do it most satisfyingly. And we don't want to be exploitive. I'm not going to walk up to somebody and say, "Hey, I'm writing a book. I understand something bad happened. You're going to talk <laughs> right. to me about it." Right. But I do think it's I do think it's appropriate to say to somebody if you're aware of somebody who's been in that situation to say, "I'm I'm looking for a creative inspiration. I admire what you went through. Are you willing to share that with me? You don't have to." I think there are ways of approaching it. There are also ways of of, of involving yourself in the system. There are there are no there's always a need for for volunteers. There's always a need for people to assist in hotlines and, you know, in all, in all sorts of victim response and survivor-centered treatment. So there are ways to involve yourself. Again, I'm not talking about lurking around at night and seeing what happens, but I think if you're going to write crime, it's important to understand it and to understand the responders. So I do think you have, again, you have to do it in, in the right way, but I do think it's it's important to reach out to victims, witnesses, and responders, and see if you can forge relationships and see if they'll do a respectful interview with you and see if they'll share their experiences with you. You know, the reason I write crime is because I was in that business. I was a DA. It just happens to be something I know. But there are marvelous, marvelous writers who come from other professions and, and still do it very, very well. But I would guess that almost all of them find a way to become a little bit a part of that experience just so they can get close enough to it to see what's going on. That would probably be my, my, my like flat it. out, yeah, my, my flat out yeah. most straightforward first thing that I would say. Fantastic. Thank you for that. So, thank you so much. The final part oh, is, you. and you did mention it, where to find your book. So you said your books are on, uh, mm -hmm. the, book, yeah. the one that's coming out in the fall and then the one that's already out, Amazon and Ingram. And Correct. Amazon, Ingram, uh, there's a marvelous distributor I just started working with. It's called Dark Frog. So it's D-A-R-T-F-R-O-G, darkfrogbooks.com. They're also, actually, with Copperhead Road in particular, they are they are working successfully to get that book into independent bookstores nationwide. So to, to sort of get it moving. But in the meantime, it's through Dark Frog, it's available. Through Amazon, it's available. And through Ingram Spark, it's available. So, yeah, no, the, the book is easy to find. If you if you Google Copperhead Road, you're most likely going to come up with Steve Earle's brilliant 1987 recording, which is actually what I based the title on. But if you Google Copperhead Road and put my name beside it, it'll, it'll come right up. Thank you. Thank you very much, Roger. Thank you both. I think this is an honor. Thank you.
And now it's time for the On the Hook segment, where we have an author read uh, excerpt from one of their books, and we're with Roger Canaff. He will be reading from Take It Away, Roger. Thank you, Diane. This is from Copperhead Road. Chapter 1, August. I am a child of denial. From the age of six, I learned to be terrified of the truth and that the lie was the best friend and most sensible implement I had with which to chip away at the day-to-day existence that made up my life. There was no time for reflection. Reflection involved reality, and reality was no friend of mine. It's not as hard as one may believe who hasn't had to do it. I'm talking about the separation we make between what is and what should be. But I'm also talking about the acts themselves. Yes, the acts he made me perform and the acts I then committed. It's not as hard as one may believe who hasn't had to do it. That is the great lesson of my life. I have seen and taken part in acts of violence, bravery, hatred, chivalry, perversion, and perfect evil. Acts both heroic and demonic. And the common thread that ran through all of them is that they flowed from the actor in a way that was surprisingly easy, surprisingly natural. This is the story of a haunting. It's not a haunting of the supernatural variety unless we define the more mystical aspects of the human form and the often suspicious weight of circumstances as something supernatural. A ghost story would be easier to tell as the material in the countryside that surrounds my Virginia town is rich and plentiful. But we were not haunted by a ghost. We were haunted by a demon, a demon that was encapsulated in a living, breathing human being who subjected real horrors on real people for a very long time. My unfortunate fraternity of fellow victims and I were directly affected, but no less than an entire town was truly haunted while he was among us. We sheltered him. Silence was his greatest protector, and the town slept willingly, if unwittingly, as he did his work here. This is the story of that tribulation, the stones we overturned, the corpses we unearthed, the silence we finally broke, and the people we left behind. It's a story that I can only tell through the haze of memory and the dimness of time. The tingling nonsense and angry lust of my own adolescence speak to me most clearly through the musical icons of my time, the menacing snarl of Billy Idol, the aching chirp of Madonna, the insouciant drawl of John Mellencamp. I was 17 then, and although it's both painful and funny to reach back there, it is even more difficult to do it honestly. The fortunes of community are tied closely with that of its children, even in this transient age. Like any organism, a community grows and changes, both suffering from and responding to infection and disease. Some surround and engulf, some die, some regroup and fight back. In the sweltering August of 1984, ours begin to explode. That's all for today. Thank you for listening. If you liked today's episode, please leave us a review. It'll help us keep bringing you great content. For show notes, upcoming events, and to participate in the Brooklyn Writers Project community, head on over to our website at www.brooklynwritersproject.com. Questions or comments? Send them to contact at lifelinespodcast.com. We'd love to hear from you. Lifelines, the books podcast has been brought to you by the Brooklyn Writers Project. Music for this podcast has been provided by Anthony Nuda of Noble Sense Productions.